Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, The Life of 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. And I wanted to address one thing. Obviously, I'm not in a professional studio. And despite the fact that I have a really great mic and I do have it on the right setting, I do pick up ambient noise, which hopefully is not as distracting in the video, but if you're only listening to the podcast, you might hear my neighbors mowing their lawn, which they often do on Saturdays, or you might even hear in the faint distance, if you have excellent ears, the sound of the train, because I do live in Birmingham, Alabama, and I am surrounded by trains. In fact, the next place I live, I don't want to live anywhere near a train. Anyway, I wanted to let you know and apologize for the background noise, but the other mic I have is going to lower the sound of the recording quality. So I thought I would stick with my wonderful Blue Yeti mic and hopefully you can ignore the background noise. All right, let's get started. Days 31 through 34, Friday through Monday, June 15th through June 18th, 2001. I really want to go to West Hollywood and listen to some tapes while driving there. I haven't had a John and Adrian bonding drive for a while. I miss those. 5.29 p.m. It worked. Adrian talked John into going to Guitar Center. Oh, and I found the perfect bass. It's a black Fender Jazz with a really slim neck and body, plus the space between the frets is a little smaller, so it's easier for me and my tiny hands to play. Adrian's journal entry dated February 3rd, 2001. I go through our usual morning routine on Friday before leaving for the hospital. Flush both lines, clean both caps, and give meds. No Nubigen shot this morning due to chemo. Despite taking Dilaudid, Adrian's headache continues unabated. We don't know what to expect when we show up at Children's Hospital. Will we have to wait even though she has an appointment for the entire weekend? Or will we be welcomed like a high roller in Vegas returning to his favorite casino? Our return falls somewhere in between. We wait, but not too long, and the nurses cheerfully greet Adrian without saying welcome back. They realize no one likes staying in the hospital. Not long after Adrian settles in, a five-year-old girl wanders into the room. She has shiny iridescent dinosaur stickers all over her bald head, which she proudly shows off to Adrian. Her name is Janelle, and according to her mother, she has been fighting leukemia for two years. She's always happy, says the mother, puzzled by her daughter's behavior, never complains about the treatments. Janelle points out the bruises that run up and down her legs, a result of too many Nupogen shots. Adrian admires the bruises and says, You've got me beat. I don't have that many yet. Janelle grins. I can see how her smile alone gives her mother strength and hope, not unlike Adrian. 
We tell Janelle to come visit us anytime she wants. She beams and skips out of the room, her mother trailing behind her. Meeting five-year-old Janelle reminds me of when a four-year-old Adrian wrapped her arms around my thigh, the top of her head even with my hips. Don't go, sissy, she said. It was August 19, 1990, the day I left home, the day I moved 2,000 miles away to go to college, the day I left Adrian alone with our mother. I don't know how Adrian understood what was happening, but she seemed to know I was going away for a long time. I hesitated for less than a second, but I couldn't stay in Alabama, not even for her. I unlocked the vice grip Adrian had on me and knelt down. I'm sorry, kiddo. I have to go to college, but I'll be back for Christmas. Don't worry. Her eyes welled up, but I don't remember a single tear falling down her cheek. Even then, she was a tough kid. I walked out the door and didn't look back. I said goodbye at our cousin's house in Haleyville, our mother's hometown, which is 80 miles northwest of Birmingham. Adrian went there often that summer because our mother worked long shifts at the hospital. I wanted to leave home sooner, but according to our mother, I was her property until I was 18. So I waited, and I planned. I worked full time, saving every penny. I bought my 1988 Ford Escort from our mother. I sold everything I owned, including all of my furniture, my television set, and my bed. After attending a three-day orientation in Los Angeles, I returned home flushed with success at having found a job on campus before school even started. There was no stopping me now. Mother had hoped my new boyfriend Shane, a good old southern boy who said, yes ma'am and yes sir, would convince me to stay. He loved kids, especially Adrian, whom he called Pumpkin. What my mother didn't know was Shane kept a fifth of whiskey in his glove compartment and believed all women should stay home, raise kids, and keep their mouths shut. He didn't understand the purpose of higher education. He ended our relationship because I chose school over him. After Shane's departure, Mother stopped speaking to me unless it was necessary. I was leaving Shane, I was leaving Adrian, and I was leaving her. She refused to say goodbye to me. I spent my last night at home packing boxes with the help of two friends. I put a cassette in my stereo, the one item I refused to sell, and danced around singing, Gotta make a move to a town that's right for me. I shimmy my hips as I sealed a box with packing tape. Well, I talk about, talk about, talk about, talk about it. I left on August 19th, four days after my birthday. Gotta move on. <laughs> Gotta move on. Chemotherapy has evolved over the years. Along with the Nupigen, other drugs can prevent or lessen the side effects. Most doctors don't give these cytoprotective drugs during the first course because they need an accurate assessment of how one's body reacts to chemo. Now, Dr. No is giving Adrian amifostine. It will protect her kidneys and hearing, which may be damaged by cisplatinum. The amifostine flows through Adrian's IV, into her central line, and makes its way into her body. She appears relieved. She will still be able to hear her music. Her words reverberate in my head. I would rather be dead than deaf. I leave the hospital when John and Anya arrive because I have to pick up a little bit from the vet. The pets are my purview. Just as John refuses to wash dishes, he will not lift a finger when it comes to caring for our pets, especially the cats. I should say cat. We only have one cat now. 
Our other cat, Ebony, died last December, four weeks after our vet performed surgery. Ebony, an all-black cat with 24 toes, was diagnosed with megacolon disease, an incurable condition common in male cats. In a few months, Ebony went from 20 pounds down to 10. The surgery was supposed to help him, maybe give him a few more months to live. He was seven years old, young for a cat. Later, our vet said the drug he prescribed Ebony post-surgery was pulled from the market because it caused heart problems. He blamed the drug for Ebony's demise. I blamed him. Now I wonder if I was too quick to judge. As I drop off a little bit at home, I can't help wondering how Adrian is doing. Always ask about potential side effects. While I am navigating the never-ending Los Angeles traffic, Adrian is vomiting over and over and over. John makes a note, nausea slash vomiting at 1750. The amethostine is vicious. Everything comes up, her dinner, her evening meds. By the time I arrive, the worst of it is over, but Adrian continues to throw up until after nine o'clock. I ask a nurse why someone didn't warn us. She says something about not telling the patient because the doctor doesn't want a psychosomatic response to cause the side effects to happen. Like, Adrian wants to vomit. <laughs> this explanation makes no sense to me. Why tell us about the side effects of some medications, but not others? The nurse lacks an answer for that particular question. Over a two-hour period on Saturday morning, Adrian takes meds with crackers and manages to keep everything down. Zofran and Ativan keep the nausea at bay. Her lunch of mashed potatoes and more crackers stays in her stomach where it belongs. Children's Hospital has room service similar to a hotel. There is a standard menu, and the kids can order anything they want, whenever they want, if they are not on a restrictive diet. I imagine Adrian will get bored with the menu at some point, but for now, the novelty of room service has not worn off. Ordering food is one of the highlights of her day. Adrian is sharing her room with Whitney, whose cancer, which has spread to her limb system, has diminished after only one round of chemo. Significant progress. I can hear the words through the thin curtain that separates the two beds. I am jealous of Whitney's prognosis. Her doctor sounds so hopeful, not like Dr. No. Whitney is doing well even though she has not left the hospital for more than 24 hours since we last saw her due to constant infections. Adrian's body may be more tolerant of the chemo, but her cancer is far worse. I wish we could trade places. Give Adrian the cancer that responds to treatment. Fuck no change. I want to hear significant progress. What if we never hear those words? When Adrian's psycho doctor, Diana, comes to visit that day, I tell her about my jealousy outside of Adrian's room. She explains to me the five stages most people experience when they encounter trauma. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. These stages can occur in any order at any time. I tell her that John is angry, and I have bargained with God. I don't feel sad, though. I ponder denial. The meaning of denial, a refusal to grant the truth of a statement, infers that people cannot be aware of their denial. I acknowledge Adrian is sick. That's a fact, and there's evidence to support it. Therefore, I can't be in denial, can I? I don't know. Then I realize I don't want or need to know. If I am living in denial, it works for me. I was out of town doing an industrial show for two days when I got a call I never expected to get again. 
Adrian was in trouble at school, and the assistant principal, Mr. Prino, needed to meet with me right away. Three times in 13 years is a good record, but I would have preferred to keep it at two. When she was three, Adrian punched a boy in the face. The preschool couldn't get in touch with our mother, so a teacher called me at high school and requested I pick up Adrian early that day. I arrived to find her sitting in a small plastic chair in the corner, staring at the wall. The teacher never asked Adrian why she hit the boy, but I did. She replied, He said mommy's drop off and daddy's pick up. You don't have a daddy. Then he laughed at me. I told the staff they needed to speak to the boy and his parents about how there are different types of families. They nodded their heads in agreement. Then I took Adrian home. When she was in fourth grade, Adrian hit another boy in the stomach for the same reason. He teased her. She was almost expelled from LA's Best, an after-school program that allows students to stay at school until 6 o'clock. That incident occurred when I was in the hospital doing the radiation treatment for my thyroid condition. Why did these things happen when I wasn't around? Did Adrian think she could get away with it? Adrian was grounded and I made her write a behavioral contract, which I posted on the wall near the kitchen. Also, we discussed other ways she could have handled the situation. I emphasized words were more powerful than fist. The next time a classmate teased her, she remembered my advice. Combing through her extensive vocabulary, she stood on her tiptoes and looked the school bully in the eye. Carla, you are a hermaphrodite, said Adrian. Not knowing what a hermaphrodite was, Carla felt stupid and never picked on Adrian again. Later, they became friends. Flushed with pride, Adrian told me about the incident as soon as I picked her up from school that day. We laughed together. <laughs> Brain beats brawn. No phone call that time. The third time, I arranged a meeting with the assistant principal. Then I called Adrian and demanded a full explanation. She sounded contrite but insisted she didn't know she had done anything wrong. Instead of giving her the ignorance of the laws, no excuse speech, I decided to wait and see what Mr. Prino had to say. He knew me well as a substitute teacher, and he was the same man who said I was being too hard on Adrian when I couldn't find her after school one day. She's a good student, almost straight A's. She can't be that bad. I was curious what he was going to say now. Adrian had challenged his perfect grades equals a perfect child theory. You see, Miss Wilson, we have a policy at this school about profanity, he said. I know I work here. The students may not use it in any way. According to Adrian, she and her friends have been writing song lyrics on the dry erase board located inside of her locker. An older teacher spotted the word fuck and took both the board and Adrian to the office for defaming school property. I knew this woman. She was ancient, almost retired, and broke students' pencils for pleasure. I was surprised by my reaction. I didn't allow Adrian to cuss around me. I knew she did it, but I liked being in denial about it. However, the teacher overreacted in this situation. The small office became thick with tension. Did Adrian explain what happened and why she wrote that word, I asked. Yes, she did, said Mr. Prino. She even cited the First Amendment and invoked her right to free speech. The corners of my mouth turned up, but I didn't squelch the smile in time. Mr. Prino caught it. You don't seem to take this seriously, Miss Wilson. I used my I mean business teacher voice to hide the laughter bubbling inside of me. I do, but I think this was a misunderstanding. Adrian made a poor choice, and I will discuss it with her. It won't happen again. Mr. Prino's face became red. She violated school property. No, she wrote a song lyric 
on her whiteboard, which she bought with her own money. It's her property. The locker is school property, Miss Wilson. He hissed the S in Miss. You're right, but can I please have Adrian's property back so I can return it to her? I pointed to the whiteboard where it lay on his desk. He looked ready to throw it at me. Fine, he said. He thought I was one of those parents who allow their children to run all over them. After that conversation, Mr. Prino and I didn't speak much. The perfunctory hello, how are you, but that was it. I never got over his inability to separate the difference between an honest mistake and truly bad behavior. Her coughing wakes me up. Adrian has mucus in her lungs. Every time she coughs, she clutches her liver. A chest x-ray shows no acute changes. While the staff seems unconcerned about her hacking, they are worried about Adrian's oxygen intake, which is dropped to 93%. The norm for most people is 99%. They give Adrian oxygen through a nasal tube, but it dries out her nasal cavity, so she requests a mask instead. The mask makes it difficult to understand her when she talks. However, the oxygen relaxes her and the coughing has subsided. To control the pain, a nurse increases the Dilaudid in Adrian's IV from 4 milligrams to 6 milligrams. Then she asks me about the amount of Dilaudid Adrian received during her first round of chemo. I stare at her. I didn't take detailed notes from those first two weeks, not the way I do now. Where is Adrian's chart for May, I ask. We can't find it, she says. Isn't there a computer somewhere? No, Children's Hospital is going through a transition period. Not everything is electronically stored yet. I think about the nurse who yelled at me when I looked at Adrian's chart. I think about the paranoid looks I get when I write in our sacred spiral notebook. Now the staff is asking to see my notes because they lost Adrian's chart. I tell the nurse, to my recollection, Adrian was never given more than six milligrams of Dilaudid every four hours as a continuous drip except when she pushed the PCA for acute episodes of pain. I speak these words, this medical mumbo jumbo, without thinking. I am one of them now, only without the degree. I hate it. Adrian tries to swallow her antibiotic Bactrim, but the large pill sticks in her throat. She throws up again. Looking through my notes, I discover a pattern. Swallow Bactrim, throw up, repeat cycle. Why didn't I notice this before? I see that last night's dinner of Caesar salad, bread, and crackers stayed in Adrian's stomach until she took her Bactrim pill at 8 p.m. I tell the doctor on call, and he recommends a liquid form of the antibiotic in the future. Adrian likes this idea because she believes the pill is too large for her throat, which causes the gagging reflex. Without the Bactrim, Adrian is able to keep down her lunch. Chicken nuggets and green beans, as well as her dinner, a grilled cheese sandwich and french fries. I don't care, her diet today has mostly consisted of junk food. Any calories are better than none at all. The lamb in the children's hospital gift shop is perfect. It is white, fluffy, about eight inches tall, and has the face of a camel, with large, brown, felt eyelashes hanging over small black beads that serve as eyes. Maybe it is supposed to be an alpaca, but it passes for a lamb. When I turn the plastic key on its back, the tune, Jesus Loves Me, begins to play. I laugh out loud. People stare at me. I don't owe them an explanation. They wouldn't understand anyway. I buy Sweet Feet, which is the name on the lamb's tag. Adrian's eyes light up when she sees the lamb. You shouldn't have, sissy. We can't afford it, she says. 
It's okay, I tell her. Wind it up. The tune is recognizable, but it comes out slowly as if it hurts the lamb slash alpaca to produce this piece of music. We laugh long and hard. Jesus Loves Me represents our crazy Aunt Tootsie and the absurdity of certain aspects of religion. Then Adrian notices the lamb's head moves from side to side. Its eyes follow us, like the Mona Lisa. Creepy, she says, smiling. Adrian likes creepy. Monday is the last day of the second round of chemo. Adrian enjoys her third pause visit with Rondo the Quiche Hound and Vera the Black Lab while I ask Dr. No about current lab results and other types of treatment. We stay in Adrian's room this time. Adrian's AFP has increased from 1.4 million to 2 million. He assures me this is normal. He wants to see a change on the next CAT scan scheduled in three weeks. Then we will know if the chemo is helping at all. Fuck you, no change. I ask about radiation therapy. Not an option for liver cancer, he says. The necessary dose to be effective is too high for the body to tolerate. Scratch that option off the list. I tell Dr. No about the articles I've read about HCC in Japan. He dismisses them outright. Their staging system is different, and many drugs used there are not approved in the United States. So we may have to leave the country to get the right drugs. Fine. Anya's mother, Dr. Sakozi, read a promising study about Provacol, a cholesterol-lowering medication used in conjunction with chemotherapy to treat liver cancer. Dr. No agrees to try Provacol because it can't hurt Adrian. He agreed to this because another doctor recommended it. Figures. No MD after your name equals no opinion. Dr. No leaves. A nurse gives me the discharge papers. There are six new prescriptions. With Delato replacing Tylenol-3 and liquid Bactrim substituting for the pill, that makes three more than last time. Eleven total. Will the number of medications continue to go up? Bactrim, liquid. By mouth twice a day, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., antibiotic. Hopefully it won't make Adrian sick like the pill form. Boost, drink as you want, a nutritional drink similar to Ensure. Dilaudid, by mouth, four times per day as needed, 8 a.m., 2 p.m., 8 p.m., 2 a.m., painkiller. Tylenol-3 sure didn't work. Loverol, tab, by mouth, once a day, 8 a.m., birth control. Magnesium, by mouth, three times per day, 8 a.m., 4 p.m., 12 a.m., a vitamin supplement to alleviate Adrian's bone aches. Neupogen shot, subcutaneously once per day, 8 a.m., medicine to increase white blood cells. Nystatin, swish and swallow four times a day, 8 a.m., 12 p.m., 4 p.m., 8 p.m., antifungal. Percolase, by mouth twice a day as needed, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., stool softener. Provacol, by mouth once per day, 8 a.m., cholesterol-lowering medication. Can't hurt Adrian, may not help her. Zantac, by mouth twice per day, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., anti-nausea, new prescription. Zofran, by mouth every 8 hours, 8 a.m., 4 p.m., 12 a.m., anti-nausea, still prescribed in case Zantac doesn't work. We leave the hospital at 7 o'clock. After her 8 p.m. meds, Adrian goes to bed early. She wants to be rested for tomorrow. She will see Dave Navarro perform live on The Tonight Show. Maybe she will meet him too. Thank you for watching and listening to this episode of Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode.
You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. 